You know, when you when you look at a Texas Chainsaw, or Last House of the Left, or something, and you're watching the movie, the people making the movie are untrustworthy. You're going, well, what? The, wait a minute. You know, it's like, oh, we're we're not supposed to. What the hell? You're watching it, and you're not in the hands of a master. You're in the hands of a maniac. I was in a shopping, and I was in a Wards, Montgomery Wards, uh, or Sears hardware department, and the crowd was crushing it, and it was really. I wanted out of there, and I found myself standing right in front of a rack of chainsaws. And just the idea happened. I, I know how I could get out of here quickly. And something happened within about 30 seconds. It, it truly seems like 10 seconds, 30 seconds, whatever. This, the 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 stru the skeletal structure for the film, and and a lot of the texture too, just fell in place. About uh, kids, isolation, uh, no gas. Uh, you know, straight out of the no gas time. You know, I think we were really, really afraid. You know, things may really change if we're really out of fuel. I think it was integral to its to its times. I think in a, in a way that that you don't think of now when you see the movie. I mean, you, you see it. I think it washes over you, and it's scary and, and frightening. And a lot of stuff is working subliminally. Shameless Picture Show podcast. My name is Michael Virus, and with me, as always, is one of the few men to traverse the Forbidden Zone. That is, until his breed made a desert of it ages ago. Matt Richards. <laughs> I tripped myself up for a second there because I didn't. Re I didn't write my own name because if I don't write everyone's <laughs> names, I forget them. And uh, I wrote dessert. <laughs> yeah. Nice. But uh, before we get to our, that sounds delicious. I'm sure it is. Uh, before we get to our main topic, uh, it's worth mentioning uh, that we horror fans have lost another legend <clears throat> of the genre. On August 26th, we lost Toby Hooper, best known for his film The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Toby was a fascinating filmmaker with a very blue-collar, laid-back sensibility to his work, but wasn't afraid to make you scream. Often imitated but never replicated, Hooper was a political filmmaker to the bone and tried to find something to say in each of his films, but also wasn't afraid to have fun and lampoon his own work. Um, Nick, what, what um, do you have any favorites of uh, our man Toby? The uh, after his passing, I kind of looked over his filmography a bit, and I have not seen a whole lot of it. Um, the two that really stand well, no, well, obviously Texas Chainsaw Massacre mm -hmm. stands out. I also, you know what. I'm going to pull up his filmography because there, I have some doubts as to the accuracy of the list I pulled up in the first place. I looked up one of them to confirm and it was not correct. Oh, that's, that's unfortunate. Go to IMDb. Yeah, that's what I'm pulling up now. It's funny. He, he, okay. it's funny. Um, he, he worked with Steven Spielberg and he looks kind of like Steven Spielberg in his IMDb picture. It's does. really strange. <laughs> Um, so wow, he he that dude kept on working. Yeah. Um, so of course Texas Chainsaw Massacre—that's one that I saw. Uh, 
either just in at the end of high school or just in the beginning of college that haunted me in a way that most horror films yeah. don't. Most horror films you can um, I don't know, separate yourself from mm-hmm. them where Texas Chainsaw Massacre was so it it preyed on all of the the same fears that were going on in that era of of this this fear of other people either kidnapping you or getting mixed up in the wrong crowd um it, there wasn't a lot of magic to it there wasn't a lot of of supernatural essence to it it was just scary in a way that there is precedent for in our culture. no exactly like he, he he was going for this sense of gritty realism and i like the fact that he shot it very much in a um um, a documentary style in a way of handheld ca- light handheld cameras um you know, cinema verite style if i want to bring up my pretentious film school roots <laughs> um no and like and that's what i was saying like about how he's often imitated is you know people got such a guttural reaction to texas chainsaw massacre that there's been filmmakers who have strived their lives trying to create something that make someone else feel the way they felt about that film. And I don't know if, how true this story is. Uh, I have not checked my facts on this one. This is just the story I always heard. and uh, But it's one that I like, is that Toby Hooper never considered that film to be a horror film. He thought it was a comedy. <laughs> and like I said, don't quote me on any of this, this story I've heard. Right. Is that he also thought, he tried to get a G rating for that film. <laughs> Had he taken a severe blow to the head recently? Uh, well, he, his, his point was there's no blood in the film. Yeah. It's all of the mind. Like, I don't know if that's true if he actually viewed it as a comedy, but it's like th- my point is that there's filmmakers out there trying to replicate the v- feeling of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and he wasn't even trying to make something intense and guttural. He... he he thought it was a comedy no one got it so when he got a chance to make texas chainsaw massacre 2 he just ran with it and made a straight up weird comedy and it's one of the reasons i love that film so much both of them yeah um and then to to contrast against that the other one that has uh impacted me that i've seen of his is poltergeist um which had a very different tone to it. it. It's the in terms of that that gritty realism, like Poltergeist is the antithesis of that. That one is very supernatural, very um, traditional of the horror films that I grew well, up. Well, there on. is a reason but, for that. Uh, why it's so different? Uh, it's because, uh, and this is no longer a secret. Toby Hooper didn't direct that film. What? No, Steven Spielberg directed that film. Toby Hooper had his input. Um, hold on, I'm trying to find the name of the like. I uh, hold on, this is all just going to be dead air for a second because I'm trying to find <laughs> the name of uh, the interview that I listened to that confirmed this. Um, this dead air <laughs> is brought to you by Milligan's Air. <laughs> Uh, I'm just going to cut all this out because uh, I feel like a name will be important to this. Hold on. 
Do you like breathing? We all do. But when I breathe, I breathe the best air. Milligan's quality air. John Leonetti, um, who, his brother was, um, the sim- his, um, brother matthew leonetti was the director of photography on this john was the focus puller and cameraman on poltergeist and so he was by the camera at all times and uh he said that steven spielberg directed the majority of this picture not because he was trying to like push toby hooper out he brought toby hooper onto this film pretty much him knowing that hey there's a potential director strike coming up and if that were to happen i can't direct this film and anyone who's directing this film has to be has to be taken off of it. Toby Hooper was not a member of the Directors Guild, so he brought him on okay. and, and said, "You know, I'm I'm bringing you on for this reason." But that's not to say he didn't have his inputs. You know, he had ideas. He brought things to the table. But the large part of that film's vibe and tone came from Spielberg. Huh. That's interesting. So. So there you go. So I guess then Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the only one that, <laughs> I guess, and like, that impacted me. You know, and I, 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 I'm glad I found out that because like there's always been the talk. It's like, oh, like, you know, people always said because, you know, it's it's the directing credit always says Toby Hooper, uncredited Steven Spielberg. And people always take it as that like, oh, they, there must have been fights on set or something. No, Toby Hooper came onto that set knowing that he was, I don't want to say a patsy, but he was there for name. It was it was a safety yeah, net. Yeah, and like the uh, the cameraman said, there's a picture that he loves that he said that he would uh, he wants to post online at some point of his brother behind the camera. Oh no, his brother talking to a grip, setting up lights. He's right next to the camera, getting the focus right. Um, Steven Spielberg is talking to the actors, and Toby Hooper is sitting on a crate right next to the camera, talking to the effects guys. And it's like he's like that is the perfect <laughs> explanation of how this movie went down. Sure. Huh. So, wow. Uh, I also recommend if you're going to see any more of his films, Nick, uh, Texas Chainsaw Two, because I think I think it's okay. fantastic. Uh, and here's another one where it's like he's making a horror film, but it's I feel like he's trying to make a comedy again. Eaten Alive. It's a killer crocodile movie. Yeah. I I know the box art from uh, <clears throat> the old blockbuster days i also found out for the first time through imdb that he directed the billy idol music video dancing with myself that's what what imdb says like you know take it for a grain of salt but that's amazing (laughs) um but no anyways um toby hooper he's uh i don't want to say misunderstood because that makes it sound like he didn't have his appreciators but he's he's one of the the horror icons that i feel like kind of got a bad rap because of some inconsistencies in his in his catalog but i feel like now it's a good time it's ripe for rediscovery and i haven't even seen the movie but i want to see spontaneous combustion because that just that title has me hooked <laughs> so that that's toby hooper um so nick if you add anything to your shameless have it be texas chainsaw massacre too i will add it promptly <clears throat> Hey guys, quick break. Uh, Before we get to our main topic, um, I thought it'd be great to hear from some of the listeners and some friends of mine about the influence that Toby Hooper's had on them. So, I I reached out to a couple people 
and uh, had them record a little something something about uh, the legend that is Toby Hooper. Um, a little bit later on the show, you'll hear something similar about Planet of the Apes from a couple people. But um, since we're not doing an official episode on one of Hooper's films, I thought this would be a great way to give him some, give him the respect I feel like he deserves. Uh, first up is a buddy of mine named Wes Allen. I am introducing him because he forgot to do so in his own recording. Uh, I know uh, Wes is one of my Russell buddies. Uh, I met him at a convention. He is in a way responsible for our sponsorship with vinegar syndrome and he's a really great dude and we share common interest in exploitation films and professional wrestling so here's wes and then after that we have ron pertie and then we have a double one with kate balsley and gregory bishop thanks for listening guys so you'll have to excuse me because I'm driving down the turnpike, so it might be a little noisy. But uh, I wanted to take a moment uh, to talk about Toby Hooper. Um, uh, I can I can say without a shadow of a doubt that Toby Hooper is the artist responsible for the piece of art that has had the single greatest impact on my life, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is represented in in almost every single room in my house, short of my daughter's room and probably the kitchen. (laughs) There's at least one leather face thing in every, every, every room of the house. Uh, I still consider Texas Chainsaw Massacre the greatest genre film ever made. And I, I count it as one of the best, best movies ever made. Um, if for no other reason for the fact that like from from its release onward it has influenced countless filmmakers waves of of, of genre film that have come out uh, it's influenced actors it's influenced musicians it's influenced the way that horror movies are made it influenced the aesthetic that would become a a blueprint what we would consider scary uh, and uh, that is all due to Toby Hooper's vision and how he sees things as a filmmaker, uh, or how he saw things as a filmmaker, rather. Additionally, I think a lot of times, because Texas is such a monolith of a film, what often gets overlooked are the, uh, the weird moments in Toby Hooper's film career that represent his, his dark sense of humor, uh, I know Evil Dead 2, for an example, gets a lot of the credit for having that slapsticky horror comedy feel. But in all reality, if you watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, you get, you get a real sense of what Toby Hooper finds funny because there's a lot of ridiculous shit going on in there. Be it Dennis Hopper's portrayal of his character, which is an absolutely fucking nut bar performance and then uh, Bill Mosley's infamous uh, turn is chop top uh, and let's not forget movies like life force which is you know, it's not a good movie but it's definitely an absurd movie and uh, like Steve Railsback I think that's his name his performance is so strange in it. Uh, Eaten Alive, a movie that often gets overlooked in his in his film uh, catalog. 
Toby Hooper had a really weird sense of humor, and uh, found found these these weird, gory, grimy elements entertaining and funny, and it comes across. Uh, and I think in most instances, his his movies make people uncomfortable. Uh, they scare people, but there's a lot of fun to be had in watching his uh, watching his his career uh, unfold. Um, we're at a we're at a point we're we're at a crossroads as uh, genre film fans because a lot of these uh, these gods of of the genre have are are uh, passing on. Uh, Wes Craven um, and then two two directors who uh, my three favorite films of all time are the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, and Night of the Living Dead. We lost Toby Hooper and George A. Romero. Uh, in one year, those are those are giant holes that uh, that that people will inevitably step up to fill. Uh, people people will step into those places and and make make a movie that that blows all of us away, that uh, that changes how the genre functions, how horror movies uh, are made. But make no mistake, that person was most certainly influenced, whoever they may be whenever they show up, by the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Night of the Living Dead. So Toby Hooper, someone may step up into that position, but nobody will replace the movies that he put into the world, particularly Texas. Uh, same goes for George Romero with Night of the Living Dead. Um, it, it's... Uh, it's certainly a sad. It's a sad time when you lose these guys, these these icons, and and it's it's safe to use that word when you're talking about people that made some of the most important movies that horror will ever have to claim. Um, but we know that the the art they left behind is as, as cliche as it sounds is it lasts a million lifetimes. So. Uh, I am a proud, proud fan and lover of Toby Hooper's work. Um, I mean, I've got an entire tattoo sleeve of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He's, he's with me forever. Um, and uh, not, just, not just etched into my skin, but also etched into my heart. Uh, he will be missed, but uh, what he left behind is, is, is bigger than him and bigger than all of us. And for that, we should all be very thankful. So uh, thank you for what you did, Toby Hooper. Thank you for what you left us. And uh, may, may all of us involved in movies continue to attempt making you proud. Hi, my name is Ron Pertie. I'm a filmmaker, and I also host the Ron Pertie Show over at greetingsfromron.com or wherever you steal your finer podcasts. Toby Hooper. While he didn't um, make as many films as I love as George Romero uh, or even a Wes Craven, if it wasn't for Toby Hooper, I wouldn't be into horror as it is now. I was seven years old, um... And I was at my uh, my father's house, and he was asleep in a chair. And there was a VHS tape in the machine, and it was partially ejected. You know how people, us old folk, used to just leave them kind of stick out there because we'll pick it up where we left off. 
and uh, there was no label on it. It was kind of worn away. I pushed the tape in, and if this had been anything other than what it was, this conversation would be way, way different. But it was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And my father had stopped watching it at the sequence where uh, Leatherface um, puts the woman on the hook. Now, at seven years old, I see Leatherface putting a woman on a hook. And most seven-year-olds, and I can attest to this, um, would freak out and scream and be like, have a, have a field day. Like, oh my God, what's going on? What's going on? I watched it with amusement. I loved it when I was watching. I was mesmerized. I was kind of in a trance almost. Um, and, and I wanted to see more. Um, but unfortunately for me, he woke up and I got yelled at and... It was years before I saw the final bit of the movie uh, as a whole. And uh, while George proved to me that I could make movies, uh, Toby's the one that uh, introduced me to the genre. And uh, he will, in my eyes, and I'm sure many, many others, be a great loss on the industry. Thank you. Hello, I'm Gregory Bishop. I'm a programmer with the Atlanta Film Festival. I'm Kate Balsley, and I'm an assistant professor of film um, at Georgia Gwinnett College here in Atlanta. Today we're going to talk about um, the late and great Toby Hooper. Rest in peace, Toby. Yes, rest in peace. It's a real bummer to see him go. Yeah, he was. Um, he contributed so much to the horror genre. I mean, I think he was, um, you can correct me if you disagree, but he, he did as much for horror as George Romero did. Um, as far as uh, the, the slasher, the slasher subgenre of horror, mm-hmm. uh, especially with the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. And, um, and who can forget Poltergeist? I mean, I know that Poltergeist, um, Poltergeist is kind of a, a lot of people have had conversations about it. Um, some people have even claimed, gone so far as to claim that Steven Spielberg directed Poltergeist, but um, I'd like to disagree with that. I think that's uh, all Toby Hooper, just with more money. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I like that. Toby Hooper is just more money. Um, yeah, I, 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 I love Toby Hooper's work. He's incredible. Um, I was scarred as a child, uh, first by Poltergeist. My dad had a really weird way of introducing us to horror films. He really shouldn't have been introducing us. Um, and, and would often like get really giddy and excited when one was on the television, and he would, and he'd like coax us all in the room when it was definitely not an appropriate film. Um, but he meant it very well, so it was very sweet. So we'd like be scarred because <laughs> we're watching this movie that if my mother were in the room, she'd probably uh, throw the hammer down and, and uh, uh, shield us. But um, I'm happy he did because it, it opened me up to a lot of really fascinating work um, unrestricted early on. So I, I got a, I got a, a jump start, if you will. Um, I remember very vividly watching um, Poltergeist uh, in the scene where the guy goes to the bathroom and starts peeling his, his face off. <laughs> it was just so nightmare upsetting. Fuel. It's nightmare like, fuel. Uh, but it's such an incredible film. Such a, such a, uh, a beautiful, creative, uh, uh, honestly, relic. Because, I mean, these days, 
I don't feel like horror films are being treated with the same sort of well, it was gravitas ge- as they are. It was the, genuinely creepy. It was a genuinely scary film. And um, I first I first saw Poltergeist when I was nine or ten, and I was always a big cinephile. I was always into movies ever since I was a little girl. My dad bought me a great big book on horror films um, for my my third grade Christmas present, and my mom was real mad, but I just remember being fascinated by these images and descriptions of the films and um, I asked my dad what masturbating with a crucifix meant and he took the book away from me and but he gave it back to me um, a few days later I think he was just trying to humor my mom I was reading about the exorcist Hmm. and so I remember um, I had this VHS tape of poltergeist that I watched and um, I watched that shit over and over and over and I was just obsessed with that film and this is like 1990. All the other little girls my age were obsessed with the new kids on the block, but I couldn't give a fuck about Donnie Wahlberg or, you know, all their their songs that they sang. I Kate I, has really put in a vendetta yeah, against the Wahlbergs I, in these recordings. Yeah, <laughs> no, but no, but I I was into Poltergeist and I was into Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg and I, you know, would watch that VHS over and over again and you know why this angle and not that angle and you know how do they produce this special effect and. Um, you know, why'd they choose this actor over that actor? And um, I was just fascinated by the, uh, not just the, the premise of the film, but of course I was wondering about the, you know, creation of the film. And um, I think the Poltergeist, the reason why Poltergeist hit, hit such a nerve, and I, I do feel like the special effects were, were great, considering it's, what, 1982? Oh, what a golden era. Yeah, that. 1982. I, I showed it to one of my millennial friends uh, about 10 years ago, and before the, thing, the term millennial was even coined, and he was like, God, oh, so cheesy. And I'm like, you're wrong. You're wrong. But I, I, you're I wrong. Think, I, I, I think the reason why, why this film um, struck a nerve was because it was so close to home. And it's not just a haunted house movie. There's a lot of stuff um, beneath the surface, buried. And you know, pardon the pun if you've seen the film. But um, I remember being struck by how they lived in the family. The Freeling family lived in this neighborhood where all the houses looked the same. You know, it was a housing development. For the most part, it was all white people. They were all comfortably middle class. They all lived in the suburb where there was uniformity. Everything looked the same. But they had this dark, disturbing secret. You know, like the family doesn't come out right away and share that they're being haunted by malevolent spirits. You know, they keep it to themselves mostly. And, you know, the film could be seen as, yeah, what lies beneath the suburban surface? What lies beneath the American dream? You know, and of course the film is also, you know, very explicitly about corporate greed. Um, You know, it's about... Um, it's about a family, you know, of course there's a very strong family message in the film because Spielberg <laughs> produced it, mm-hmm. you know, which is kind of interesting because a lot of people say that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was about the um, dissolution of the American nuclear family, but Poltergeist affirms the strength of the uh, American nuclear family. But as far as the subtext goes, you know, it was. It was about secrets. It was about um, what you present to the world. You know, it was about, um, it was was the dark side to middle-class suburban life and the American dream. You know, and of course, corporate greed, which I believe I've already mentioned. But, um, you know, that's why I feel like the film was impactful. And also, it's different from your standard horror haunted house film because if you take a look at, like, the lighting, the mise-en-scene, the cinematographer... So much of Poltergeist is takes place in brightly lit rooms. You know, um, the scariest scene, the chair scene in the kitchen. You know, all the lights are on. You know, it, it's, it doesn't look like anything bad can happen. It doesn't look like anything else could exist there. You know, of course, like the famous tree scene is definitely creepy. Um, but, you know, most of the film takes place in a comfortable suburban house. 
Uh, with the exception of that awful swimming pool sequence, and you know, there's that great rumor where they used actual skeletons. I don't think that's true. But um, that's a rumor. I, I think it's a rumor that they used they used real skeletons. I don't think they would do that in a film. Or maybe they did. I don't know. Well, I mean, they sell real skeletons. To they they could have used real skeletons store, so if, if I'm wrong. It's possible. But yeah. I I heard that you know they did use real skeletons and it freaked out Joe Beth Williams. But all this shit's circulating on the internet. You don't know what's true anymore. Mm-hmm. It certainly makes a good story. Yeah. A great IMDb trivia. Right. Point. Right. Yeah. And and the family, you know, the family is normal seeming. The actors all did a terrific job. You know, they had real kids instead of adorable moppets. You know, the um, and yeah, the fact that it's a comfortable white suburban middle class well off family. You know, with three kids and you know mom and dad and a backyard with a swimming pool and a Labrador retriever. You know, the film is about normalcy. You know, what is normal? What what lies beneath normal? You know, it's 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 smart. Right, so it's 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 interesting to compare Texas Chainsaw with Poltergeist because they're both directed by Mr. Hooper and they both share themes that are similar, but they're inverses of each. Take it away, Greg. Um, I kind of want to segue into talking more about, but thanks. Uh, but segue into talking a bit more about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, what? I mean, words don't quite dis- for me describe the raw. film raw. It's yeah. Raw. It's raw, but it's there's something about like, it's like, it's like a film that 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 manifested in itself by by being dragged by the celluloid being dragged in a <laughs> behind a, a dirty van down a, 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 a kind of a desolate highway. It's just it's this grimy, grimy, unheard of at the time, a feeling. It's such such an incredible sense of cynicism and did, hopelessness. Did they film it in and Super Sixteen or Super Eight or? I think it was probably more like I don't know, but I would I would deduce likely Super Sixteen. Uh, well, you I mean, know, it, it clearly had no money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was definitely low budget, and it, and it used that to its advantage. Oh yeah, in a way that I think that it's actually quite obnoxiously done today. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, but no, but like really I, I, saw, this I saw a remake of this film in New York in like 2003, and it was just so tame and so, so sanitized, you know, like, like uh, compared to the original, and, and, I, and I think the original struck a nerve was because it looked so, it was so raw and so real, you know, mm-hmm. I'm asking, was it shot on Super 16, because it looked like it was, it looked like home movie footage, mm-hmm. you know, once again, excellent casting, the teenagers were real. The setting was real, you know, the, the family, the, the creepy family, I mean, like, they, you know, you don't like thinking about <laughs> about it, but they could be out there somewhere. It was like this, you know, and it was also based on a real serial killer, um, Ed Gein from our very own home state of Wisconsin. So, you know, once again, the 70s also, you know, a very cynical age. Um, you know, a lot of the films were, their subtext could be interpreted as the breakdown of society, the breakdown of values, the breakdown of the family. And a lot of people read the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as the breakdown of a nuclear family because you clearly see this very dysfunctional family, right? You know, they're, they're, they're psychopaths, they're serial killers. Um, and, uh, you know, they're okay with it. Of course, uh, what's, what's the girl's name in Texas Chainsaw? Sally. Chain- Sally. Sally's not okay with it, obviously, but, you know, you see this uh, destruction of youth. Um, you know, brothers and sisters get, you know, ripped apart from each other. Uh, lovers are ripped apart from each other. You see this perverted look at, you know, a nuclear family. And um, all these attacks on what we've held to be dear and true and normal. You know, ideology is being broken down. And this film reflected that. But yeah, it was the rawness. You know, it looked, 
You know, the, the girl is hysterical throughout the entire film, and you, she really looks scared. And, um, you know, I showed this to a group of students when I taught a horror film class, and, you know, they felt that she was just shrieking throughout the entire film, but, I mean, wouldn't you do that if you were in her situation? <laughs> Um, I also watched a DVD with uh, Mr. Hooper's commentary on it, and he was laughing about the interpretation of, you know, the breakdown of the American family. But, you know, it's, it's whether or not that's what he intended, you know, it's what people interpreted. And, um, you know, it's very, very, whether it was a deliberate attack or it was unconsciously put there or it was um, inadvertently read into the film, you know, it was, it was still a very bold film to make and um, getting people to think about the function of the horror genre, especially as it pertains to American culture. You know, I, I kind of, earlier we talked about, the, you know, the, the film, the word raw, but this film, but the gritty approach is something that I found uh, so interesting because it reminds me of a lot of, of this, con it's like something you stumble on that you shouldn't have had, you know, as something's like, it's not well-groomed and sterile, and, you know, it's like it's like a, a videotape yeah. that you just find at and a thrift store. And you're not supposed to see. You're not supposed to see, it, and yeah. you're like, it's not meant for, you yeah. know, and it, it it's so uncomfortable in that regard. Oh. Uh, and it, it like, uh, I think uh, in England, they, 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 they would ban films, and they'd be deemed video nasties. <laughs> uh, I don't think it quite, it, I, I'm sure it actually, I mean, would probably fall under a film that, uh, would have been banned under that, um, but but that's what we're to think of as video nasty. Mm -hmm. I think this even though it isn't video. Oh, the opening probably... sequence of this film, mm -hmm. ugh, uh, it's just icky. You know, you no, just want to take a shower after you see it. Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's just it's it's genuinely vile. It looks like it looks like the film. The film looks like it stinks. It does. Like all throughout. Yeah. Like even in the bits with oh. with, with the with the the teenagers and the yeah. And the and the non you you feel like the, the 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 I get the same feeling watching this film as when I find old celluloid film at rummage sales and I get mm -hmm. all this dirt and grime on my fingers when mm -hmm. I like scroll through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the same feeling. It, it's a dirty film. And it's especially but not dirty in that way. Not dirty in that way. I'm not talking about. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I know. Yeah. But like, but the, you know, actually, on that, speaking on that, um, if I remember correctly, there it, the film isn't. For its subject matter, it isn't particularly visually gory. It's not a very bloody film. No. You know, uh, I think when I think Sally's brother, when yeah. he dies, yeah. it's it's almost it's 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 environment called bloodless. Yeah. It's with the chainsaw, of course. You feel you know, the blood. But but you but it's it's done so in a way that you kind of put the piece pick the pieces to yourself. Yeah. I, that was word gore. Um, it's it, left up to the imagination. Left up to the, and it's far more effective that yeah. way. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. You like kids being dragged in the back oh, of the house God. and they're yeah. slamming and you're just like, oh. oh. When he gets hit in the head, mm -hmm. you know, spoiler alert. When when one of the young men gets hit in the head by Leatherface with the big mallet. You know, and he's, in, you know, once again, he's going someplace he shouldn't be going. He's investigating this old broken down house and the door slides open and Leatherface whacks him in the head. And you, you know, you don't see blood squirting. You don't see heads caved in. I'm sure you see a little bit, but. Well, but, but, you but, know, he falls and he's, his leg is shaking because he's been badly damaged and Leatherface dra drags him in and slams the door. It's, oh, it's just, you just get a physical, visceral response to this film. And even tiny creepy things like um, like the collection of spiders on the ceiling, you know, there's a zoom into that. You know, you, you get the sense of decay. Mm -hmm. You know, not just decay of the environment, but of course decay of values, decay of ideologies. Um, but yeah, my parents were folk art collectors, and um, when I was much younger, 
they took me visiting um, um, people, you know, in deep south in the Appalachian Mountain region who would make art out of things like twigs or skulls or bones. And, um, you know, watching this film, I think of outsider art and how, like, I'd have slumber parties and my friends would freak out and they'd want to go home because they were scared of the painted skulls and stuff like that. But, but yeah, it's, it's, it's outsider culture. You know, it's also our fear of, you know, our, our fear of this, this, the subculture, our fear of people who've been overlooked by society, you know, the uneducated, the disenfranchised, the people who are impoverished. Um, you know, I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, but I just remember my friends freaking out over folk art. <laughs> and then I think about how people are freaking out over this family. Because I actually found, like, the skull, the, the bone statues in this film creepy but creative. And, um, but no, it's just representative of just an unbridled life, you know, creativity, unbridled, so it's, you know, unbridled society, fam. I don't know. I'm, I'm totally talking on my ass here. <laughs> it's all good. On that net, talk, on the humorous <laughs> note, I actually want to talk about the sequel. Kate, you haven't seen Texas Chainsaw Part 2, oh, right? not, no. Okay. I, it's been a long time since I have, mm-hmm. but I have to say, um, for those who, who the uninitiated, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two was directed by Toby Hooper quite a bit time later, because um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a '70s film, mm-hmm. Part Two was a uh, '80s film. But rather than like repeating what he did in the first film, mm-hmm. he took a gamble and just made a kind of what is kind of loosely a horror comedy, at least in my term. I like I akin it closer to Return of the Living Dead, mm-hmm. um, a film that I'm that very, 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 very fond of. Not only in its its dark humor approach, but because the the soundtrack is is awesome and contemporary and uh, like I mean I remember I think in the opening scene of part two these two like goofy eighties teenagers are like are are trying to prank I think they're prank calling a, a radio station and they're driving down this <laughs> this of course dark barren road and then they 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 start they start getting it they start they start getting attacked, I think, by Leatherface. Right. And, and while this is going on, like, one of my favorite Oingo Boingo songs is playing. <laughs> <laughs> the one lives forever. It's such a good song. And it's so perfect for this scene because it's just batshit. Oh, uh, so the film, though, if I recall personally, and I, I think collectively, I think the film wasn't as well-received. Um, I think people were expecting something a little more visceral, like yeah. Texas Chainsaw. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I cannot help but give the man kudos yeah. for for doing that, frankly, because you could have gone the route that a lot of horror franchises right. go right. and just kind of repeat and rinse and repeat, repeat and rinse, and then they have like eight sequels later, and the series has just lost all the credibility right. it's right. it's built, you know, with its oh, first God. landmark hit, uh, it, and it, it becomes it, a parody of itself. Exactly. And, and I appreciated it very much in that regard. Like how like, the Simpsons have become. Oh, well, that's, well, I, I, that's a whole other thing. I, I, think, I, think I, found, I, th- I think both Poltergeist and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, if you had to find a unifying theme, it would be what lies beneath. Mm-hmm. What lies beneath. Yeah. So, yeah. I think Toby Hooper was ex- interested in exploring the darker recesses of, um, of uh, you know, ideology, of social structure. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd probably laugh at me like he did on the DVD commentary, but... Yeah. You know, sorry, that's how I, re- I read it, dude. It's all good. It's totally fine. <laughs> I'm sure. I, I would hope. Unfortunately, we won't get a chance to ask him, but... Yeah. But it'd be a great discussion to have. I, I think imagine. we should watch Poltergeist tonight. I think so, too. I want to end this on a quick note. This isn't a Toby Hooper film, but there was a, a latter sequel... Uh, 
later, not le later sequel, forgive me, a later sequel to Texas Chainsaw, called Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. And it came out, I think, in the 90s. And, and it, it had to have been like, <laughs> probably not, but it had to have been like Matthew McConaughey's second roles <laughs> like, or something. And it, <laughs> it's, it's, in the, it's way more in the vein of Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. It's not directed by Toby. Um, but it's bananas. Um, if you can find it for a buck at your local thrift store, I recommend getting it, taking, getting a view of it. Um, long story short, uh, uh, Matthew McConaughey is like I think a member of of the crazy family, or or at least related. But he's got a robotic leg for some reason, a, re a reason I can't remember. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> but it's it's uh, it's it's absolutely. Well one, I guess one Bizarre. criticism I'd have of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I mean, like, this is not just the film. I mean, this is a lot of Hollywood movies, including, like, stuff like Winter's Bone, which I thought was a fine film, but it, it reinforced this idea that rural America is full of inbred, backwards, maniac, illiterate, you know, incestual. And that's not true. That's not true at all. And um, that's, a, that's a very bad stereotype that's been perpetuated by, um, by Hollywood. So there. So one thing I would like to uh, end this on is uh, if you're in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, you can actually see Texas Chainsaw Massacre in theaters at the Avalon on, I think, September 14th. Uh, check it out. Uh, if you have an opportunity to see this film in, in, in a proper setting, I absolutely recommend it. It'll change your life. Uh, uh, adding to that, uh, the Milwaukee Film Festival, um, which starts on September 28th, um, will also be playing Poltergeist. Um, that plays on the 29th, so you should definitely check both of those out. Uh, this doesn't happen very often, uh, and I can I, I guarantee you it'll, it'll exponentially change the uh, experience for you. On to the main topic of today's episode. We'll be discussing the classic 60s sci-fi epic, Planet of the Apes. I don't know why I stressed it that way. I just felt like it made it more <laughs> dramatic. <laughs> Apes. Uh, Planet of the Apes, based on the book by Pierre Boll, was written by Rod Serling and Michael Wilson, directed by Franklin F. Schaffner. The film tells the story of Taylor and his group of exploratory astronauts that fall victim to a terrible crash as their spacecraft comes pummeling down into the water of an unknown planet in an unknown solar system. While trying to get the lay of the land and figure out where they are, Taylor and company eventually discover a group of primitive mute humans. But things get crazy in a hurry because before these astronauts can get comfortable, they're hunted on horseback by apes. Taylor discovers he's landed on a planet ruled and overrun by simian creatures. The film would go on to spawn countless sequels, two television shows, and, and more merchandising than one could ever want. It's gone on to be considered one of the greatest science fiction films ever made and still has legions of fans today, especially after the high-budget prequel films Dawn, Rise, and War of the, for the Planet of the Apes. The original film stars Charlton Heston, Roddy McDowell, Kim Hunter, Maurice Evans, and Linda Harrison. Can't help thinking that somewhere in the universe there has to be something better than man. Has to be. The words are Charlton Heston. Get out a last signal to Earth if we've landed! The world he finds out in the galaxy will challenge every idea you've ever had of civilization. A planet where man is the lowest order of living things, and the superior beings are apes.
They build the cities, make the laws, the gods, and control the guns that hunt a race of lowly, terrified humans who run wild in the jungles, are caged in the prisons, and stuffed in the museums. 20th Century Fox transforms the motion picture screen into Planet of the Apes. Pierre Boulle's finest novel since Bridge on the River Kwai. The world gone insane. An upside-down civilization that could not be real. Yes, a world of madness and terror. Man has no understanding. He can be taught a few simple tricks, nothing more. You did it. You cut up his brain, you bloody baboon! It's a murder! It's a murder! But it did not end here. It ended in an episode so unpredictable, so shocking. It made the horror which preceded it seem calm and gentle as a summer's night. A great many people worked long and hard to answer the question of what a civilization would be like where the evolutionary process had been reversed and apes were the superior species. Hundreds of technicians and the largest number of makeup artists ever assembled assisted the producers, the writers, the director, and the cast. Dr. Cornelius Roddy McDowell. Dr. Zira as played by Kim Hunter. Dr. Zayas is portrayed by Maurice Evans, and Nova by Linda Harrison. Now the tribunal has placed you in my custody for final disquisition. You realize what that means? No. Emasculation to begin with. Then experimental surgery on the speech centers, on the brain. Eventually a kind of living death. Planet of the Apes, beyond your wildest dreams. So, Nick, this one's on your shameless this week. Yes, it was. And I'm sorry, I'm doing so, a, a bit of frantic um, doodling right now. You said this was written in part by Rod yes. Serling? I did not yeah. know that. Uh, the original draft um, was written by Rod Serling. He came up with that iconic ending. Uh the budget was too high uh, with his version, uh, so they actually got Michael Wilson, who was a blacklisted uh, Hollywood um, screenwriter, to come in and finish it up. What I find particularly interesting about that is during the I entire your first face half when of I said the film, that, too. that was kind of... the first half of the film. I'm like, this is, um, this is a very specific episode of the Twilight mm-hmm. Zone. Uh, I shot an arrow into the air. Um, it's a riff on a mm-hmm. poem, I believe. Uh, and it landed, I know not where. Um, about oh, my eye! A, a crew oh, that joke. goes <laughs> off. <laughs> it found its mark. Uh, a, a crew that launches off into space. Uh, loses has some technical difficulties they find a planet to crash land onto and they're trying to survive on the deserts of this planet 
that at the very end, after they've all betrayed each other and there's only one left, they realize that they've been on Earth the entire time. Hmm. When was that episode? What was it called? Uh, I Shot an Arrow into the Air, I believe is the title. Uh, Twilight Zone. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Okay. Air date was January fifteenth, nineteen sixty. Interesting, because this movie predates that, or I mean, is after that. So that episode predates this. This was sixty eight. Right. It's interesting because, like, uh, this. Well, we don't have to worry about spoilers because anyone anyone who's listening to this before they see the movie <laughs> is is just a problem. <laughs> it, in in Pierre Boulle's original book, though, the big twist that they've been on Earth this entire time was not. That was not in the book. It was actually okay. its own overrun planet. And Rod Serling, now knowing that he's recycling his own scripts, came up with that with that stinger at the end. <laughs> yeah, when, when you mentioned that name in the intro, I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense now. Where do ideas come from? Where do they come from, do I Ideas come from the Earth. They come from every human experience that you either witness or have heard about translated into your brain in your own sense of dialogue in your own language form uh, ideas are born uh, from what is smelled heard seen experienced felt emotionalized ideas are probably uh, in the air like like little tiny items of ozone that's the easiest thing on earth is to come up with an idea and the second thing is the hardest thing on earth is to put it down who was it uh, that said writing is the easiest thing on earth? He said, I simply walk into my study, I sit down, I put the paper in the typewriter, and I fix the margins, and then I turn the paper up, and I bleed. Yeah, he, he, he wrote his original version, and like um, his version of Planet of the Apes was very technologically advanced and, uh, and, and everything. And uh, they just thought, like, because no one knew this film was going to work. No one figured it was going to yeah. work. So, like, they thought the budget was too high, and I think um, the producer, um, trying to figure out which one it was, uh, Arthur P. Jacobs, he was trying to get money from um, uh, Zanuck, uh, I think it was, I don't know if it was Richard, yeah, it's Richard Zanuck, and pretty mu he pretty much told him, it's like, if you can get this down to, like, $2 million, you, I'll give you the money. You just need to okay. do all that budget. So they brought in Michael Wilson, Who's got a uh, a very sad story as a as a, a writer? Uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but uh, let's talk about your feelings before we uh, get into you know the story of how this film came to be and just like start picking it apart. Sure. Um, so overall, uh, I okay. enjoyed it. Um, I I'm not going to be a die hard like it it didn't change my film world by any means though i think a certain amount of that i don't know how much is the fact that i've seen so many parodies of it <laughs> yeah that you know the story you know the ending like to the point where i didn't even realize until halfway through that i wasn't supposed to realize that they were on earth the entire time. yeah so that probably took something away yeah, from it. i agree um uh charlton heston's acting style worked a lot better once he was in the in with the apes 
like that overly dramatic style like really rubbed me the wrong way when he was surrounded by other humans yeah. trying to survive out in the desert <laughs> while everybody else was trying to like you know just be normal and he's like oh as he chomps on a cigar this planet is why did you sign up for this trip then <laughs> once it was with the apes that made sense like it worked but before that it really didn't for me yeah uh I don't know. I, I I found all that to be really amusing too, uh, and I also was surprised. Like, it's 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 Heston's style. You just kind of get used to it. But I was surprised about how good of an actor he was when he wasn't speaking. Like, it, I, no, 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 no. Like, what I'm trying to you you have a face for radio. It's like he did a good job of communicating his thoughts through his face and his actions. More so right. than because like. Heston, you when you hire Charlton Heston, you want the voice, you want the bravado, and it's like he. It, now don't say anything for a third. I, I don't know. I thought it was like, wow, he's he's better silent than I would have given him credit for. Sure. Well, I, I'm sure that kind of more stage style of acting benefited him because he was able to emote more without words. Yeah. I'm also amused too, real quick talking about Charlton Heston, because like I, I always thought this movie and the Omega Man have a really strange like liberal bent to it, where like right. I, my my favorite line in this movie is at the end, where he's like, "Don't trust anyone over thirty. and he's like, <laughs> "Wave those flags of discontent," and he's like, you know, talking about like just you know, stick it to the man, and then like I had to look, it's like because I I know the Charlton Heston I know is like the the publican republican conservative leader who created the nra right and i was like that doesn't seem like because omega man he was like he's sitting in a theater watching woodstock and goes it was a different time then uh, <laughs> and i was like that doesn't seem right and i looked it up he was a democratic uh civil rights guy in the 60s but later became a republican i was like okay that makes more sense but <laughs> i i our theory, I watched it with some friends, and so our theory watching it is that this movie made him realize that the government was trying to take his guns, and he was no longer able to protect himself from the upcoming ape rebellion, <laughs> and so that is the that is why, he, maybe he had a stroke early on at some point, and he's like, wait a minute, the apes are coming, you people don't know, I was there, I saw it, we need our guns! I, I also love that like he's like uh, don't trust anyone over thirty and it's like you're what like forty something, <laughs> right? Or are you Charlton Heston? <laughs> like uh, maybe that maybe that's why he knows that they shouldn't be trusted. Yeah, like let's do let's do let's do some quick math. I'm curious how old he was. <laughs> I'm gonna do some quick math because now I'm curious by this. <laughs> This dead air is brought to you by Shenanigans Air. Don't trust Milligan's Air. Their air he sucks. He was 45 when he made this movie. He was born in 1923. We all know that men can play characters, like, as young as eight. Since we're, since now we're just talking about Charlton Heston and everything that became just him. I also love that, like, uh, near the end of the movie, he wouldn't go anywhere without Nova. And he's like, if she's the only half good, half decent looking woman on this planet, she's mine. <laughs> yeah, I had a real, as as being as much of a feminist as I can as a dude, uh, I really try. 
Um, I had a real problem with that entire Nova story. That was a problem that the only like, the only woman that could speak that wasn't an ape died before she even had a line. Yeah, yeah, totally, and died from like extreme old age instantly. Well, <laughs> look at how shriveled up she is. No man will want her. Uh, she did die because, um, you know, they're traveling through time. The yeah, which also. Uh, has been done in Twilight Zone episodes. There's the uh, the um, Rip Van Winkle caper where they all seal themselves into these like body preservation things in a cave, and one of them, their pod gets ruptured. <laughs> ruptured uh, during that time, and most of them wake up, but one of them doesn't, and. Now it's looking more and more like Rod Serling just shuffled all of his episodes together and said, here's your script. Rod Serling, we need you to write this script. No problem. He's sitting there. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and first I off, imagine he just I'm dropping. He, he had a bunch of scripts in his hand. He dropped them all. He's like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> shuffled them together. <laughs> just throw some monkeys in it. There you go. Uh, well, there's, there's also the episode of The Twilight Zone where... Um, uh, it's it's just like us or it's just like earth where there's a, a group of astronauts going out to explore one of them is very nervous so uh one of them says to the nervous guy like i have this theory where we're all made by god whether it's us or aliens so they all must be like us wherever we go we're going to be able to relate to them on a basic level so they end up getting there the nervous guy is the only one that survives um, and the aliens that they meet seem really nice, and they put him up in this nice house that, that, that is tailored to his needs as an earthling, uh, and then he realizes that he's actually in a zoo. Mm. He's trapped as an earthling in a zoo, and he shouts out to the... He was right, they're just like us. They find something unique, they stick it in a cage so that everybody can come look at it. But that, def again, like, is echoed in what happens to Charlton Heston's mm -hmm. character when they find him and throw him in a box to study and, you know, whatever. Uh, this segment of the Twilight Zone Hour was brought to you by Milligan's Air. <laughs> Milligan's Air sucks. This is JP shenanigans. <laughs> no, it's actually crazy. I, I've seen a lot of... Uh, I'm currently working through my my goal, rewatching through all of the Twilight Zone because it's all on Netflix and Hulu currently. Um, but I know I've seen a good majority of the episodes, but I, I remembering that I had remembered a whole lot of them, and it's kind of interesting how much he's um, pulling from himself. And the only thing I could think of is it's like there's there's themes that he just he uh, really wanted to get out. And, you know, thought, sure. well, you know, while The Twilight Zone is one of the most popular TV shows of all time, he thought, well, here's my chance to get more, say what I'm trying to say on a bigger scale. Right. I also know that Rod Serling had a real problem with commercials and commercial mm -hmm. breaks. Uh, there's a great quote from him, and I'm not going to be able to say it verbatim, which is a shame, but... Um, uh, it, it's hard to tell a compelling story when you have to break every seven minutes for cartoon bunnies to sell toilet paper or something like that. Well, you know, be great would be would be fantastic <laughs> if uh, like cause I haven't read the two scripts. If um, Rod Serling's script was completely different, 
And then Michael Wilson came in and just oh, was like, oh, I like Twilight Zone. And started... <laughs> Rod, you left out all of your best stuff. I, don't worry, I got it. I got it. Uh, going <laughs> back to our love love affair with Rod Sterling real quick, one thing I thought was kind of great about him is like he really took his story seriously. And like whenever he would write yeah. something and he had to go in and pitch it to the to the office or whatnot, he would sit down and read every character and like do it do a very dramatic, realistic reading of how he wanted the script to come out. Like and I just I love nice. that his dedication to it. And uh <laughs> well obviously you can feel Rod Serling's influence to this on, on this film. Hey guys, it's Michael again, interrupting the show. Hopefully you've been enjoying uh, Nick's factoids about the Twilight Zone. Um, before we get back to that, we got a couple more interviews that we've had people submit, this time about their feelings about Planet of the Apes. Uh, first, we'll have a gentleman by the name of Kevin Waterman, then back to our good friend Ron Pertee, and then back to Gregory Bishop and Kate Balsley to wrap it all up. Um, after that, we'll be getting back to the show, and no more interruptions from me. Thanks for listening, guys. Hi, this is Kevin Waterman. Nick had asked me to go and record some of my thoughts and feelings on Planet of the Apes, so here goes. Planet of the Apes is easily among my favorite movies. There's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, One element is certainly stylistic choices. I really enjoy the rather harsh, discordant music you know, score that they use in the film. I also, especially paired with the sudden, like, rapid, tighten-in zooms that they do periodically throughout the film, I like, like how it gives it that very slightly unsettling, discordant feel that comes out of that. I'm also a big fan structurally of how it is set up, that it keeps building along you know each time you know every so you keep getting more revelations about it obviously it's probably nearly impossible at this point to go and see planet of the apes without knowing the big twist at the end but if you didn't know it i think it's structured really well so that you've they've crashed on a planet and then discover there's people like them except they seem to be mute savages and then the big twist that there's apes and they, they are civilized or at least safe, you know, intelligent and have something of a civilization. And then you discover that not only that, it's a theocracy. And then that they are – the theocracy is keeping hidden the fact that this isn't how things always were and that man was once much more intelligent than he was. And then obviously the big final twist reveal at the end that it wasn't another planet all, at all. It was Earth all along. I, I think it's very well structured. It keeps enough to keep you. Uh, it's always a bit of a surprise, the new thing that comes along, or at least it is the first time. I think it also it's nice that it works really well when you already know the ending, that it gives the contrast between his, um, you know, Taylor's self assurance about everything when you know, in fact, that how wrong some of his key assumptions about the world that he has found himself on are. Which, another element that I really enjoy about the movie, as someone who is a big fan of comprehensive world building, is that there's lots of small, almost throwaway elements that just give lots of, to my mind, very interesting questions to think about. Um, for example, one is, whatever, why is it that man is still around but has devolved so thoroughly that this has no longer has speech, even though it retains all the physical capacity for it? 
why is it that the apes have retained English as their language, other than it's convenient for the story? Um, a particular um, one that strikes me is that why is it that apparently there are no birds or insects or anything else that flies left on Earth since the, the apes absolutely believe it is a complete and total impossibility for flight to exist, which also begs the question of why they even have retained the word for flight if there is nothing that flies. Um, what exactly is the path of their technological evolution that they retain gunpowder and know about brain surgery fairly advanced brain surgery enough to or at least enough to lobotomize someone to remove any trace of their ability to speak or anything else but other element and other elements are substantially farther behind that they still use horses and don't appear to have anything more advanced than horse-drawn carts for vehicles for example the other thing that I think is really interesting about it is that I think it gives, especially when taken as a piece with other Heston movies of the period like Soylent Green and The Omega Man, offer a very interesting window into what the big prop concerns and fears of the day were. That especially uh, Soylent Green is a little bit better an example of that probably, especially since it seemed the fear that we are on the verge of imminent overpopulation, mass famine, etc. It seemed is clearly proven to be a bit overblown, but especially, as I said, all together, they give an interesting viewpoint into that and how things have shifted, which is what I think is, in general, one of the great virtues of science fiction, particularly as a genre, that allows a lot of exploration of ideas like that, even if they, you know, that prove to be of varying degrees of validity. And I think that about wraps up my thoughts on Planet of the Apes. Actually, nope. One other reason that I do love Planet of the Apes is that my first exposure to it was not actually Planet of the Apes. It was the very end of Spaceballs, which is a movie I also have always loved and adored. So thanks again for the opportunity to give my thoughts on that. Bye. My name is Ron Pertie. I'm a filmmaker, and I also host the Ron Pertie Show at greetingsfromron.com or wherever you steal your finer podcasts from. Uh, Planet of the Apes, there's so much stuff you can say about it, but I'm going to try and condense myself to just a couple of minutes. It's not only an innovative film when it comes to the makeup, um, but also the story. Um, this was the first time I know of where they really kind of drove home the whole man's inhumanity to man is going to end humanity type of thing um, with that ending that Rod Serling did uh, being just masterful. Um, I, I went into the film not knowing the ending. Like a lot of people my age um, were probably spoiled um, with the the ending, and I didn't have that happen for me when I went in and I got to see it firsthand uh, as a youngster and it really blew my mind what I was looking at. Uh, so uh, it immediately made me a fan of the entire series and I went through and I started watching all of the films um, and even the remakes, a remakes, prequels, I don't know what you want to call them, but the new ones are fantastic uh, as well. But just Planet of the Apes in general, the first film, uh, will always resonate with me. Uh, and the more I watch it as I get older and the more films I make, you, you, you can notice little things like, ah, I would have done this differently. But ultimately, ultimately, Planet of the Apes is in my top 10 of all time. And uh, if you haven't seen it, 
you should watch it. Um, I want to thank you all for listening to me ramble. Hello, my name is Gregory Bishop. I'm a programmer and content manager for the Atlanta Film Festival. And I'm Kate Balsley. I'm a professor of film at Georgia Gwinnett College here in Atlanta. And today we're going to be talking about the original 1968 classic Planet of the Apes. It's a good one. Yeah, we are humoring Mr. Michael Viers for his fabulous podcast. Um, let's see, I think I think to start with Planet of the Apes. It's been a few years since I've seen it. Yeah, it's been a hot minute for me as well. Um, though it certainly hasn't been lost on me. No, I think I remember seeing Planet of the Apes um, um, pretty late into my adulthood. And finding it to be still pretty disturbing. I mean, it was undoubtedly hokey, you know, because they had, like, the, the cheesy 1968 effects and, of course, you know, Charlton Heston. But, um, you know, like, the, uh, the premise of the film, the basic theme of the film, is, is disturbing. And, um, you know, the film, it was a dystopian, post-apocalyptic thriller. Still, for me, it's still resonant. It's still resonant about, you know, man's destructive or human, humankind's destructive capabilities and what the future of the planet may be. Um, but I, I just felt like it was a very intelligent parable um, beneath the, you know, cheesy ape makeup, <laughs> which, I guess, I, which I guess for the time was pretty, pretty ahead of its time. Yeah, I'd say. Uh, now, uh, to be honest, my first introduction to the Planet of the Apes was... Back when I was living in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, I would see on the, I, I can't remember what the local television station is, like the C, not CW, but, but whatever they call it, I can't, it's been, it's lost on me, but they, they would do reruns of The Simpsons, and my first real kind of uh, reference to it was they would do a uh, clip show of the, the episode where I guess they go see Planet of the Apes on stage. <laughs> it's like a musical uh, uh the whole I, dr zayas dr zayas i thing. hate every ape i see from chimpanzee to chimpanzee <laughs> yeah you know i mean like the film has been so referenced so much in popular culture you know it, it, it's a landmark and you know that that very last iconic image you know when he sees you know of course i'm going to spoil it for those of you who haven't seen it but the statue of liberty half buried in the beach you know meaning that the earth has been bombed beyond recognition and the true monsters of the film weren't the apes but the human beings you know, who had destroyed the planet and left it in the hands of the anthropomorphic ape people and um so it, it's chilling you know any any kind of image of um any kind of image where you see landmarks of civilization as we know it destroyed or in ruins is frightening because I think we like to think that um, our civilization ourselves are indestructible and immortal, but we're not, and um, we're actually very fragile. And um, you know, we don't see the extent of our behaviors, the extent of our um, impact, not just on the surrounding environment, but on ourselves and our own civilization. And to be reminded of that, you know, in such a very brutal way, um, you know, was very impactful. And I think it sort of cemented. Uh, this film's place, not just in popular culture, um, you know, but also in the imaginations um, as far as science fiction, as far as visions of the apocalypse, as far as visions of dystopia. Um, you know, and it raises a much deeper question. Are human beings capable of handling not just the planet, but ourselves? Didn't the sequels kind of like, kind of get heavier? Yeah. Um, I mean, they got, they both got a little bit sillier in that kind of campy sense, but they also got well, a bit... 
they, they, you know, it was a big success, so of course they're going to exploit that. Um, but um, I remember seeing Battle for the Planet of the Apes, or Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, I believe, the early 1970s with it, Roddy McDowell. Is it the one where they go, where the, if I remember correctly, the, the, the two of the ape characters go back to the 70s? Like, is that... Um, I'm, I'm not sure. Once again, it's been a while since I've seen it. I saw it as an undergrad. Um, but they... It, 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 it's conquest of the planet of the apes and basically the apes revolt and they're overthrowing the humans and um, and yeah no it's it's basically about um, civil unrest uh, societal unrest and turmoil and um, it was it was pretty easy to see you know the underlying metaphor how the apes were actually you know how it was actually representative of class class warfare and and race warfare. And, you know, you look at the date of the film, it's 1973, you know, you've got the uh, tail end of the civil rights movement, of uh, the free love movement, of the women's rights movement, um, you know, and you're entering this new age of cynicism. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's totally representative of um, civil unrest. And um, it was a pretty transparent film um, that, you know, definitely it stood for a lot of things that were happening within American society. But I remember it, was, it struck me as very profound, despite that it was a bunch of people running around in monkey suits. Oh yeah. Uh, it uh, for transparency. I I did a double check, and I think the one I was referring to was Escape from Planet of the Apes. <laughs> I think I, I I I think that was the third one. They I get lost in because they don't they don't go by numerically, and they they kind of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I I remember seeing Beneath the Planet of the Apes when I was like four or five, and it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and I was afraid of monkeys at the zoo for a long time. After I saw that film on TV when my parents should have been supervising me. But, yeah, no, it's, um, you know, like, I remember vividly a scene from the 68 Planet of the Apes where Charlton Heston, you know, he's escaping his captors and he finds his old crew member who had been taxidermied and stuffed, you know, like an exhibit in the museum or the zoo, like we do to animals. <laughs> and it was just a macabre scene. You know, it was, you know, he had the fake eyes and he would obviously been been stuffed and he was you know no longer a living person but just a an exhibit in like the zoo or the museum and um that was a pretty profound um image for me seeing seeing a taxidermied human mm -hmm. you know and thinking well what we do to animals and what we do to other cultures you know what we do to the quote-unquote other is no less barbaric than what these fictional ape men and women are doing to the humans um um on the on the in the film and I did think it was interesting how the only female human character was killed off almost at once. And uh, her, <laughs> her whole point, it seemed, and correct me because it's been a while since I've seen this, it seemed like her whole point was just to help the men populate these planets with more humans. <laughs> and so, you know, in 68, women have gone far, but obviously not that far, because the only female human in the film was this sexy, pretty girl who is there for breeding purposes, and then she's killed off right away. No, oh my. Mm -hmm. So it, you know, it's, I don't know, maybe it's a more profound reason. Maybe it's, you know, the, the idea of the separation of the sexes or the fact that we can't, I don't know. I don't want to get too far into it. No, it's all good. Um, I, you know, uh, I'm glad this is a show about, uh, about films that uh, they've never, uh, people have never seen before <laughs> because I'm right there yeah. with, with this series, aside ah. from the original and, 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 on, and admittedly the, the latter half of its franchise history most most recently with the uh reboot franchise which has been doing particularly yeah well. it's it's, it's kind of hard to come it's kind of hard to come back from like a right like a campy kind of well, uh, though though serious in in all but but still resembling a 
kind of old fashioned campiness. Uh, well, it's also coming... it's also interesting how these uh, films that were very iconic in the times they were released are being rebooted. You know, they're being re envisioned. And, um, you know, there's a lot to say about remakes. What is the function of these remakes? Are they merely exploiting nostalgia? You know, are they merely, you know, oh, you know, we don't want to take a risk on original material, so we're going to reboot familiar material? Um, or are the original messages, are they capable of being rebooted to fit current social, cultural, economic, political concerns? Because, you know, the original Planet of the Apes was entirely political and cultural and social. So um, it's, it's an interesting question to see the state of um, Hollywood films and um, what's being rebooted, how it's being rebooted, why it's being re-envisioned. You know, and so on. Is it purely economics? Is it purely profit? Or is there, you know, a more um, intricate set of uh, stuff going on? But um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. But um, I didn't. I remember I didn't really care too much for the the new Planet of the Apes, the the one with the Marky Mark Wahlberg. Um, I remember <laughs> I, I, when, I, when I found out that he was cast. Kill them all. Mark Wahlberg was cast in the original, well, not the original, the 2000, 2000, 2001, Tim Burton. 2001, yeah. Really kind of forgettable, Planet of the Apes. And I remember thinking, oh, Mark would be perfect to play an ape. But he was cast as a human, which I thought was ironic. Um, There was a big hullabaloo about the ending, too. Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. Spoiled it for everybody. (laughs) We we saved you some time. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's worth the Google search to to look at the uh, the screenshot of the... Well, anywho, I think that's our uh, our two cents on Planet, Planet of the Apes. Yeah, good movie. Glad yeah. you guys have gotten around to it. Yeah. Uh, it's made me want to dive back into the old ones. Uh, aside from the first, of course. Get your paws off me, you damn dirty apes! All right, our obligatory line's in. All right. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. So we talked about time travel and in this film. Yeah. And one thing, and I thought this when I originally, when I, uh, when I originally seen the film that I'm going to be mentioning here in a second, the it's crazy how I can watch this film and see its influence still in cinema today. Um, like for example, when I saw uh, Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, I kept thinking the a lot of the like the the spacesuit designs and the ways that their ships look and like a lot of their tech reminds me so much of Planet of the Apes. And it's okay. like, like um, there just feels like there's this this influence between the two because like like you could recut the trailer of Interstellar with scenes from um, Planet of the Apes and I feel like it would it would it would work. Yeah, uh, with the exception of Dunkirk, which I'll be seeing this week. Um, Interstellar is the only Christopher Nolan film I have not seen. I'm gonna say tell you to see it because. Um, let me put it this way. When I first saw the trailers for that film, I was like, I have no f- interest in this movie at all. And then I heard it was going to be shown in 70mm, and I'm a, I'm a sucker for gimmicks like that. I was like, well, maybe <laughs> I should go see it. And I left emotionally drained. Wow. And for a movie, I didn't really, I didn't want to see it first. That's it's something. So Yeah. You know, I, it, he, he has certainly earned my trust and would always give them the benefit of the doubt but yeah the the lack of marketing or or inaccurate marketing or whatever it was 
was enough that it with my current lifestyle and having the kids and it being so much work to get Mm -hmm. out and watch something or even sit down for two hours uninterrupted um it it never made it to the table i will say though if you watch it watch it loud like if you have to wear headphones or something that works too but just like it's better loud I don't know, it's hard for me to explain what I mean. Like, you know, sometimes you see a movie that'll have a card that comes up that says, watch this movie loud. And it's like, that's the only thing I can think of. Um, yeah, but this one goes up to 11. <laughs> um, so with Planet of the Apes, <clears throat> we, um, I guess I'm trying to refocus, like, everything that we've just said already. Um, it's a very political film. And Pierre Bull, yep. when he wrote it, wrote it while... Um, I'm trying to remember uh, the exact story. If he wrote this one while he was in, while he was a prisoner of war, or if that was Bridge Over the River Kwai. I think it might have been Bridge Over the River Kwai. But, you know, he was a an author who had a lot of things to say. He had a lot of comments he was trying to make about the voices that civilization was going. So by bringing in the two screenwriters they did, I'm going to be talking about the director very little in this one because I feel like the producers, the original author, and the screenwriters had a lot more to bring to this story than he did. The bringing in the two okay. screenwriters they did was perfect because Rod Sterling, we all know about his his his... his his interest in civil rights and trying to comment on things and almost sneak things past people because like that was the whole point of the twilight zone is is connect with people about topics that they're too afraid to talk about in a way that you can sure. easily swallow yeah. and then what i was saying about michael wilson how he um he's got a really sad story when it comes to this he's on he honestly has something he's really trying to say with this film. Michael Wilson was blacklisted in Hollywood uh, during the uh, because of supposedly being a communist. Uh, he wrote over twenty two different different screenplays, uh, and near the end of his career, his name wasn't put on any of them. Wow! Like he he originally wrote the Bridge on the River Kwai, and his daughter talks about him going to see that movie in the theater. And when the screenwriting credit comes up, his name isn't on there, and it drives him crazy. Sure. So here's a man who's being labeled as a communist, who's brought onto this film and said, like, hey, we want you to write this film with this with this very obvious political bent to it. And his daughter said that he wrote it with such anger when he was doing his version of it, because he said he had a lot to say. And so when you think of like a lot of Taylor's rants... Well, over the top, knowing that there's something behind it, yeah, like is is crazy, like how like because right. uh, Bridge Over the River Quiet was also a, a Pierre Boulle story, and instead of having Michael Wilson's credit come up, they just said based on a book by Pierre Boulle, so he's ignored okay. completely. Wow, you know that could be another explanation of why. For me, Charlton Heston's performance made more sense in the second half because what was being said had the emotional foundation to justify that level of delivery. Mm-hmm. Whereas the stuff in the first half is, you know, we're just crash landed on a planet and and he doesn't really seem to care. He's like, yep, I came out here to die, basically, and have fun doing it. <laughs> yet, it, yet there were... 
it was still so over the top there that it clashed with the mm-hmm. tone with the with the seeming tone but um, no like but later on so. with him, like you're saying like especially like there's that there's that line where like um you know when he gets his voice back and I, doesn't he say like get your damn hands off me and like that's the <laughs> proof that he can speak like yeah. he gets better in the film at that point like yeah. it's yeah. like you said i think it's, it's being motivated for something and while i don't know for sure i i'd like to believe that a lot of those courtroom scenes were written by michael wilson you know because he had to go to court to prove that he wasn't a communist and all that other stuff it's like right. you know pretty much being on trial for something you know that they're claiming you're doing and there's no proof behind it and they're just going off of fear and yep. what they believe to be true and well, we all know communists are evil, and we think you're evil, therefore you're a communist. Yeah. <laughs> communists are evil. We know you're evil because, like, hell, look at you. So you must be a communist. <laughs> um, you know, and, like, Taylor was speaking, and he was trying to prove that, you know, like, this is all happening. And, like, what did they keep saying? Oh, you were made in a laboratory, or you're just a anomaly. And to find out in, yep. the, in the long run, and this is, like... For me, this, like rewatching the film now, this this um, reveal is more impactful than the fact that they're still on Earth. Was the fact that Doctor Zayas this entire time knew that everything Sit Taylor was saying is true. He just didn't. Right. He just didn't yep. want that information to get out, and he's going to cover it any he, way possible. He, yep. Oh, another uh, Twilight Zone God reference when they're in the, when they're in the caves and they find the doll and it. And it, Mama. it totally, like, again, not knowing, me not knowing, watching it, that it was Rod Serling, reminded me of the Talking oh Tina episode. Oh, my God, Talking Tina. Uh, so horrifying, yeah. that episode. Probably this one of the scariest Twilight Zone but episodes. But no, like, like, after knowing, the inf- after knowing Rod Serling's work, and knowing, well, I have seen some of the films that Michael Wilson's written, but I feel like his story as a person is far more interesting. Um, it's, it's really interesting. You can kind of see like who wrote what, where it came from. And right. Um, yeah, because like, except Michael Wilson, he, um, the, the fact that he wrote some of the biggest films of all time, the bridge of the river quiet and Lawrence of Arabia. And he was not credited. Yeah. That's like yeah, cool. he got paid and everything for it, but like you want to be credited. People people don't get into writing for the no, money <laughs> because it's a thankless job. Um, yeah. yeah, I just felt like it, it hit Michael Wilson's story really had to be touched on because I think it's an important part of what makes Planet of the Apes so biting. And while the film is dated, it really is. Like I think at the time, I'm sure like it probably unsettled some people. Like I was, I was talking oh, to Amanda, absolutely. and she thought like some of the the political stuff was a little on the nose. But I was like, this is nineteen sixty eight. You didn't, you didn't, yeah. unless you're doing a film of like, like for example, the Bridge Over the River Kwai, where you're doing a film about a specific event and there's politics involved. You didn't comment on politics. That's why what right oh, and it was, you? it also wasn't on the nose in the way that like say Avatar yeah. was, where where you spend it the whole time like mm-hmm. eye rolling. Um, they didn't hide it it wasn't subtle but it also wasn't yeah obnoxious. like i think that i think the newer mind. films do a better job of being a little more subtle 
at least in the you know, and then and then it gets more overt as the series goes on. But um, sure, and and there are times where you don't want yeah. subtlety in your message, and and I think it worked. No, I completely case. agree, and uh, so like I said, I feel like the producers and the screenwriter are in are really who to thank for the success of this film. Nothing against Franklin J. Schaffner, it just like because you know he directed the movie Patton. And uh, so, and Papillion, so he's got experience with this idea of war and everything. I just feel like a lot of the commentary came from the screenwriters and the and the uh, the original author and the, the 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 producer who wanted to make this movie. He took a chance on it, and here we have this pretty, in a lot of ways, heavy, uh, uh, political film that goes on to become huge and spawns toys and series and more movies and actually the next one beneath yeah. the planet of the apes is one i really like i actually from an entertainment level like it better than the original um, okay and it's crazy because like most people contribute star wars with being the film that started the merchandising boom but no planet of the apes was <laughs> huge Yeah, nice. I, that was a a lot of ranting, a lot of ranting. <laughs> it was good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm gonna go over my notes. Like this feel, this episode already feels kind of weird and disjointed, but you know. And that's what we do best. Yeah. We we kind of already talked about because of uh, us talking about Charlton Heston. The Taylor's kind of a jackass. He's yeah, very unsympathetic. Yeah. Hey. Here, human, take this woman. You like women, don't you? Yes, I shall claim it as my own. <laughs> and like, like you were saying before, like when the, when they crash landed, you know, here are these two other scientists who are having, you know, they just saw, watched one of their friends die. You, you, they've been in space for months, so they've all got to know each other. They were kind of freaking out, thinking they're never going to see home ever again. And he's like, "Well, you agreed to come on this trip." Crunch. <laughs> On his, uh, I didn't know what sound a stogie would make when you bite into it, so it won't crunch. Right. The, uh, well, it's for that yeah, crunchy audio. I, like that crunch. I don't. I think that might have been a joke off air, so I don't know if anyone got that joke. Hey, even if it was on air, most people don't yeah. get my jokes. Uh, that was a cut on me, not the listening <laughs> audience. I I did enjoy the one uh, ape that was uh, had, had clearly gone and like confiscated his cigar that, <laughs> yeah. and, and brought up all kinds of amazing imagery of chimpanzees on tricycles <laughs> with a stody and a fez or something yeah <laughs> yeah and it. actually i i wrote down some of charlton heston's weirder uh, or just more over the top or whatever lines my favorite being it's a madhouse <laughs> um, uh, and then my favorite line of his after other than uh, don't trust anyone over 30 is Charlton Heston trying to be deep and philosophical. Lots of women, lots of love making, but no love. <laughs> oh, oh, Charlie. Oh, you're so oh, deep, Chuck. My, my body is ready. <laughs> and then he mentions at one point, uh, uh, the, the woman on this spacecraft, I don't remember what her name is, is Precious Cargo. And that they would repopulate with his hot, eager help. What that's thinking? <laughs> yeah, that's that's objectification uh -huh. 101. 
So, as as liberal as the film is and was clearly also a victim it's sexism. of sexism. Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> a little a smidge. Now which screenwriter is gonna take credit for that? I like to imagine it was all just <laughs> by Charles Nestor. <laughs> Right. Every every day, they're, the screenwriters take him aside. Dude, I appreciate what you're bringing to the film, but knock it off with the misogyny. Please, you are killing That's us. That's what they told me in the Ten Commandments. And you know what I told them? Repent, and thou shalt be saved, you damn dirty ape. I think you're getting... You're getting your movies confused. That there were no apes in the Ten Commandments? What was Vincent Price? Just Vincent Price. But he was shaved. Yeah, he shaved for the movie. <laughs> so you shave a monkey and now you tell me that I can't treat women like objects. And you're also telling me you just me shave a, a monkey and you get Vincent Price? What is this? And that's not what we're saying, Charlie. You take my guns and now I can't protect humanity from the apes. They have guns themselves. They're riding horses for God's sakes. I know this I, don't, I know we don't have a really big budget, but can we get a better actor in here? <laughs> oh, Calcula <laughs> Oh and scene. <laughs> So, you're all extremely welcome to that. So, Nick, you, you mentioned that, well, you didn't hate the film in any extent, but it didn't really, like, it didn't work with, for you on all levels. Well, I think, like, if we would have seen this in 1968, this probably probably be one of our favorite movies of all time. I got that feeling. Just, yeah. Like you said, knowing the references, knowing the, you know, the fact that everyone's lampooned it. It's like, it's the reason why the reveal of Darth Vader at, in Return of the Jedi not Return of the Jedi, sorry, Empire Strikes Back, uh, will never be Empire. as impactful because of all of all the jokes and everything. So right, and e- even had I not seen it in in you know when it was released, had I seen it when I was like twelve or fourteen, even you know it, in that time period before I was exposed to all of the pop culture crap and before I had mm-hmm. defined my own film taste so much, I think it would have been much more impactful um well that's actually be my question uh like um well one do you think it would have been more impactful which you answered and then two like yes where does this movie stand for you is it a movie you think you'll ever go back to or is it just like you're glad you saw it but you move on i it's enough that i'm very interested in the franchise as a whole particularly the new ones because i had issues with um, in particular, the misogyny of of the original. So I'd like to see the modern take on it, but I'd also like to develop a foundation of some of the other films before I see the newer ones to put it in context. Well, you don't have to, um, because you can still enjoy. Because uh, Amanda had never seen any of the other Apes films, but she absolutely loves the new ones. They're not. Okay. They're connected, but not in a way where you have to see them all. Um, sure, you you probably it's, get yeah, a little kind more of, out it's, of it. It's but. it's a prequel. It's also kind of a reimagining. It's you know you can definitely see how like what they're trying to do as far as things kind of lining up. But it's not like it's kind of like how you don't have to see the original Mad Max to enjoy Fury Road. Oh, um, 
Because like uh, a first time, me and my mom were watching Planet of the Apes around when me and Amanda first got together. Amanda fell asleep, not because she wasn't enjoying the movie, just because she got tired. Um, so this is the first time she had actually seen the movie, but you know she had seen all the the new ones and she loves them. Um, I am still working through the original Apes franchise myself. I I, I a couple of years ago I watched Beneath the Planet of the Apes, and it's so fucking weird. <laughs> like I don't want to spoil anything because there's some great like what the fuck moments in that movie, but like they do a better job of showing civilization before it fell. Like at one point, okay, uh, and one of the characters is walking through an old subway station, so you get to nice. see a little bit of like what happened, which is kind of cool. Right. Um, but no, I got I got all the films on a collection on Blu-ray for like fourteen bucks from Walmart at one point. So I've I've got what? them all. Yeah, nice. and they all each one has like a. The first one is like maybe like sixty minutes, but like each film has got like a making of documentary that continues the story of like here's how the first one was made, and then you after you watch the second one, you can watch like how they continued on, and so it's right. it, that's pretty great in itself. Yeah. Cool. Let me continue to go through my notes. This episode, yeah. like, we say this all the time, but this episode is weird because like we unpacked so much like, during our initial thoughts. <laughs> Then we're we're just playing yeah. clean up now. <laughs> uh, I think that's most of my notes. Let me scan through like okay. the the um, the Wikipedia page super quick to see if there's anything like that pops out at me that I feel like I might have missed. Um, I can't say the character Doctor Zeus without thinking of that joke from the uh, the Simpsons where they. Uh, Doctor Zeus, Doctor Zeus, Doctor Zeus, Doctor Zeus. Exactly. Zeus. Uh, <laughs> it, it just has to happen. Uh, and there's that amazing line from that episode of The Simpsons too, where he's like, "I hate every ape I see, from chimpanzee to chimpanzee." <laughs> Help! The humans about to escape. Get your paws off me, you dirty ape! <gasps> he can talk. He can talk, 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 I can sing! Ooh, help me, Dr. Zayas! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas! Oh, Dr. Zayas! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas! What's wrong with me? I think you're crazy! Want a second opinion? You're all so lazy! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Oh, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Can I play the piano anymore? Of course you can. Well, I couldn't before. This play has everything. Oh, I love legitimate theater. I hate every ape I see From chimpanzee to chimpanzee No, you'll never make a monkey out of me Oh my God, I was wrong It was Earth all along You finally made a monkey Yes, we finally
And then, like, I never realized that, like, until that episode, that Troy McClure is totally Charlton Heston. Yeah, right. Yeah, which is great. Um, oh, one thing I wanted to talk about was just uh, some of the music and uh, the way the movie is shot. The movie is just a really well shot movie. Oh, you know, it's the the opening sequence was really with, fascinating. with them traversing through the uh, the, the Forbidden Zone. Uh, of uh, the thing in more in particular the uh, spaceship crash oh yeah I would be very interested to see what kind of camera rig that was and, and how they shot it because there was a strange like bend to each shot where where one side would kind of stretch and then the rest of it would follow behind it so there was clearly some kind of a extreme fisheye but one that did not encompass the entirety of the shot. Yeah, it was it was really interesting too. I, I completely agree. And then like, just uh, all the sequence of them uh, traversing through the um, the uh, the canyons of the Forbidden Zone. Like, uh, you know, obviously you can't see stuff like that without thinking of like a western or something. But like, yeah. Well, it. I mean, it's that whole sequence was straight out of. I shot an arrow well, into I, the air. That that was the majority of that episode was them traversing the. I believe it shot in the Badlands. I don't remember that episode very um, well, so I definitely want to uh, go check that out. But like, I also yeah. love just the, take a little cutout of Charlton Heston's face and like tape it to your <laughs> TV, and then you've got the first fifteen minutes. Nice. Of Planet of the Apes. I also love that like you know they shot this in Panavision, very widescreen. Um, yeah, you know, it really showed off those those massive vistas. But I will say, uh, that very nice widescreen photography did not do the film any justice later on when they're in Ape City, um, because yeah. some of those sets do not look very good. Like anytime yeah. they're outside or in the wilderness, it looks fantastic. But some of those sets, right, not my favorite. Uh, it it felt like. Uh, a special episode of a TV series from that yeah. era. Like, they go to Hawaii, but they're still using shitty sets, and they got nicer cameras for this one special, um, and so all of their TV-style techniques aren't paying off. If I had to describe it, it's... Their interior sets are the equivalent of all of Star Trek's exterior sets. Right. <laughs> they like they put all their money into the like Star Trek put all their money into the spaceship that whenever they have to deviate from they're like oh shit what are we gonna do yeah we's broke <laughs> um, I also want to talk a little bit about Jerry Goldsmith's score and uh, you know Jerry Goldsmith okay. is a fantastic uh, composer you know for example he did like the uh, Star Trek the motion picture he did Chinatown The Omen um alien oh, gremlins yeah, total so recall like he uh he did so much and i like that he did a very avant-garde score for this movie something yeah. just a little different uh and the blu-ray i have has a um isolated film score and i was just listening to it the other oh, day when nice. i was doing the makeup or not doing the makeup uh when i was doing the um the dishes i saw i was on the uh the wiki page and it said makeup by <laughs> blank and uh, it got confused, but I was listening to it when I was doing dishes, and I was like, "This is just really bold, bold choice." Because like, yeah. Goldsmith is fantastic because he does—he's very melodic and um, 
he writes some, some of the I, I have to say some of the most beautiful scores of all time and the fact that he chose to do something you know that's a lot of percussion and horns but not in a very melodic way I just thought it was really um, an interesting choice yeah well it was a it was a time of, of more experimentation in art and film and music and I think that was it it had that that vibe mm-hmm. for me uh, and then we we honestly can't uh, talk about Planet of the Apes without mentioning, to an extent, the makeup. Because, right. like, th- yeah. for, for 1968 to do full-body ape suits that aren't masks, they're actually, like, practical appliances. Like, yep. Roddy McDowell obviously is the best of them all of them because, like, he just found a way to emote through all that makeup uh, as Cornelius. Because, like... Zero wasn't too bad. Like, Maurice Evans was Dr. Zayas. Like, there's times where he was barely even moving the mouth. But and you could tell <laughs> that, like, he was struggling with it a little bit. But, like, Roddy McDowell found a way to get so much out of that makeup. Yep. Though, Dr. Zayas, Dr. I Zayas, think Dr. It, Zayas. it wasn't total. <laughs> From chimpanzee to chimpanzee. Um, it, I think it worked because of the, he was more of a sullen character. And, and maybe that was part mm-hmm. of the challenge was was trying to get strong sullen through but but it didn't play as stiff for me because it made sense for the yeah. character I just, it wasn't stiff it just like there's times where like his mouth wasn't really moving and i was like oh you, yeah he probably doesn't real because like he's probably under his mask doing a very specific performance but not realizing that it's not translating to but anyways right. it's not a, it's not a knock on him because i he's such a great villain and I, I was saying to Amanda, was like, there's things about this movie uh, that um, uh, work today in our current political climate. Oh, absolutely. Like, Zayas, yeah. he, he, there's just, like, you wouldn't, there's there's characters like him in our world today. Well, uh, one of the, it's, I think it's in part why this film keeps getting spoofed. Um, Futurama did one not too long ago but after they were rebooted um where i believe the character's name is dr banjo <laughs> um gets into an argument with the professor about um the missing link even though they've come up with like 37 uh missing links like dr banjo believes that they aren't connected because there's also another missing link in this chain and uh, uh between robots and humans maybe i i remember the episode ends up going into like how man created robots but um but there's a lot of that that political and uh like the politics of religion and how religion influences policy um in that episode that they pulled from there's also some like references i never got were from later films the planet of the apes in futurama that i didn't get until i saw them and there's one that i really want to tell you but i don't know if like i don't want to spoil it for you (laughs) because it's it's amusing to catch on your own but uh no they they make reference like there's reference there's things that they did in futurama that i didn't even realize were references to later apes films which is kind of great right um I think we're kind of winding down of everything we wanted to talk about. Yeah. Um, uh, is there so. anything, uh, anything else? Parting words, thoughts, Nick? I don't think so. Um, I, I'm glad I watched it and I did enjoy it. I got a lot out of it. I, I can see why it is still spoofed today. 
Um, I think it's an important film. Um, if, if not, you know, it, it's certainly a, a victim of its time and there are problems with the film that I got hung up on that I, it sounds like uh, the newer films aren't a victim of. Uh, I do wonder how much of that was Charlton Heston himself and how much was the, the creative team that put it together. Um, but no, uh, like overall it was enjoyable and I'm glad I saw it. Good. Um, I think that might be everything. Yeah. So do we have one for next episode? I think uh, you we mentioned do. Uh, uh, Dark City. Okay, that is that. Then we're on yeah. the same page. Um, though we also we could go Toby Hooper uh, film as well. Yeah, do you have one you'd want? Uh, well, I guess it would be off my shameless this time, right? Like, I guess going yeah. off of that, um, I don't know what I could find. I am fine doing. Um, uh, Sorry, I got distracted with something for a second. I am <laughs> fine doing uh, Dark City if you want to. I just uh, I feel okay. like I shouldn't I'm... have a a uh, hard time finding it. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm particularly stoked about uh, Dark City, so I think we'll uh, we'll stick Perfect. with that. Uh, cool. Then I guess it's Dark City for our next episode. Uh, Woo! I still have not written any sort of outro to this show. <laughs> Eventually, I will. <laughs> eh, I kind of liked our thing where we just stammer around for 10 minutes and eventually just clip, record, stop. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, before we end, I uh, I thought I would uh, mention this. I realized well, I, that I like silent films, but I haven't seen a whole lot of them since I've been out of film school. So I decided uh, there's quite a few of them still on YouTube. So I decided the other day to watch one that I've been missing, and I watched uh, Buster Keaton's The General. And nice. I just have to say, this like the more and more I watch of Buster Keaton, the more and more I, I love him, and I just realize this man's a fucking genius. And like he's so the the things that he does, and like the uh, doesn't use stunt doubles, does it all of his own practical effects in camera, like doesn't cut away, like he's a madman, he's a mad genius. And while I know there's a lot of times people will prefer Chaplin over him, I just feel like, for my money, Buster Keaton's the man. So, nice. uh, The General is on YouTube. You can watch it there. Um, it's like an action-adventure silent film from 1926. So, if you, you know, for our listeners, if you don't like silent films, I, I'd say you, um, give them a shot. Like, I, I personally think uh, Sherlock Jr. is his masterpiece for, for, for my money. And that'd be a great place to start, but like, there's a lot you could learn still from these old movies, especially if you're a fan yeah. of Wes Anderson, because this guy, he, you could tell that he really loves Buster Keaton because he's taken a lot from his films, <laughs> not in a bad way, like just paying tribute to. Him. Yeah. Nice. I uh, rewatched the never-ending the story never recently, ending story. which is so great. So great. I remember as a kid really um, liking the sequel. I don't know if it holds up though. It it does not. Oh, I just I like the idea of Jonathan Brandis. I just love the idea of Bastion being in the book, and I don't know. 
And yeah. then wasn't the third one that had Jack Black reading the book? That was funny. I was not. It, it was like of Jack, one of Jack one. Black's first ro- roles, and he was like a bull. He was what? like a bully and everything, and like he was picking. He was picking on Bastion, and Bastion got sucked into the book again. And um, you know, he's reading from from the Neverending Story as it's going on, and there's a great scene where like. He's, it cuts to Jack Black reading. He's like, and in this moment, Bastion didn't know if he'd live or die. And he just looks up slowly as there's a thunder crack. Because you're like, you're seeing like, he actually cares about this kid. <laughs> Jack Black. <laughs> Never in story three. <laughs> All right. Well, I have to add that to my shameless. No. It's, it's not one we actually have to talk about. But you should at least see it. <laughs> but anyways, continue, t- continue uh, talking about Never in story. I cut you off so I can talk about three. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, that was that was just how how much I love it. Uh, I am one hundred percent sure that at some point in the not too distant future, I will end up with an orange symbol tattoo. That'd be cool. It's been it's it's prime time for me to rewatch Never Any Story. It's been a it's been a couple of years. I remember um, I was still in college and I bought a, like a DVD two pack of one and two, and I remember watching one and thinking, oh, this was great. And never got around back to two. Yeah, but I just remember like just bold set designs and the and character yeah. design and and music and that the kids can fucking and act, it's, man. They're, it's also impressive too because like here's a, a fully fleshed world, and while it is based on a book, right? Um, yeah. You know, you don't normally see like set design and character design and everything so good. Uh, that's not from something a little more established. Right. Um, there's the, the, going back to the kids acting ability, the sequence where Artex sinks in the swamps of sadness and anyone who has seen that movie, like you mentioned the never ending story and they start tearing up over this and, and best friend. Um, They don't really establish a relationship between him and his horse leading up to that point. They don't spend a lot of time on it. It is it is Atreyu's delivery in that scene that sells it 100%. Mm-hmm. You believe without a shadow of a doubt that that kid is losing his best friend in that yeah. swamp. When he, he, doesn't, he doesn't overdo it to its detriment he gives it the emotional energy it deserves without it becoming over the top um and and it is heartbreaking i'm I'm gonna call it now that that kid who played artex oh sorry Uh, yeah um it's been a couple years let me alone the kid that played atreyu I did. i didn't know i did play the horse it's he's a great actor um i got a can't use cows, gotta paint horses. <laughs> I got a feeling that kid could act uh, circles around our boy Chuck Heston. Uh, yeah. I, I, I monkey could add toward. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm, I, being too mean. I'm to now thinking, this. like, remember in Zoolander, how they had like their their dance off or their their walk off. Yeah. I want to. Yep. I don't know even know what the movie'd be about. I want. I guess it'd have to be about actors. I'd want to see some sort of competition where it's an act off. Or two characters have well, to be competitive yeah, acting. Got... I apologize for my twenty seventh reference to Futurama <laughs> in this episode, but they have that where uh, Calculon is facing off against um, that 
character, uh, it, he was just in the one episode, he had to wear a bag mm. over his head because he fed off of yeah. attention. And he, he had a separate ego that was like a weird mushroom dog. Um, and they do at some point have an act off where Calculon is doing Romeo and Juliet and then uh, this other guy is doing a scene from Beantown Buddies where he's just like, he has this heavy Boston accent and is mourning over the loss of his friend. Like, Futurama, it, there's that there's that um, uh, an episode of South Park where Butters is talking, like he's coming up with all these ways to rule the world and his sidekick is like, oh, the Simpsons already did that. And he's like, damn it, the Simpsons have done everything. Yeah. That's Futurama for sci-fi. <laughs> oh, right. Futurama yep, did that already. Absolutely. God damn it. <laughs> ah! And anything of politics, South Park's got that covered. Well, there's no new ideas. Those three shows ruined everything for everyone. Right. And Twilight Zone already did yep. everything that Rod Serling yep. did later. <laughs> no new ideas. Nope. Rod Serling is such a 156 trick pony. <laughs> like, seriously, come up with an original come on, idea, Rod. Rod. Do something different, Rod. <laughs> Jesus. Serling. <laughs> I don't have an end to this joke. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna exit yeah, this segment. I, I think. I think that was the end. Um, so next time we will watch Dark yep. City. We will try and be nicer to both Charlton Heston and Rod Serling, though Rod Serling clearly deserves it, while Charlton Heston does not. I. Uh, <laughs> I still have been trying to figure out a way to get Eddie Munster on this show. I don't know if he like I, I'm seriously considering just emailing him or his manager and seeing what happens. Seriously, like, and it's not. I'm just gonna pitch straight to him. It's like it's you know maybe it'll be a slight interview, but it's like really we just want to talk to him about movies. Like he can pick a movie yeah. he hasn't seen or pick a movie for us that he you know that he doesn't think we've seen. And by and by Eddie Munster, you mean Milo, right? Yes. I just want to be real clear about that. By the way, that. I was walking through the back rooms of Target. I should elaborate for all the listeners. I currently work at Target. Um, so I wasn't just hanging out back there. Um, and <laughs> just, I walked past the electronics the area, and they were, like, unloading new books. And what, what book was on top? Phantom Tool. Yep. And I was like, hey, they're putting it on the shelves. Nick would love this. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, Nick. Mm. <laughs> did you swoon? a little bit someone had to catch me and everything and then they're like oh he's he's heavy let's just drop him <laughs> fuck, fuck this fat guy. gay it's his beard um, the beard adds does, 20 pounds but it slims me on camera uh, so next week dark city um oh oh this is worth mentioning uh well oh. By the time this episode is released, so this coming Thursday, being uh, August 14th, uh, for anyone, excuse me, who's listening to this in Wisconsin, um, the Avalon Theater in Bayview is doing a Toby Hooper double feature. Uh, Five bucks per movie, uh, but it's it's one of the only times you're going to see on the big screen a double feature of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1 and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Uh, I don't know how how often Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 plays. Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it hadn't played <laughs> since 1985. Ever. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1 plays pretty regularly. However, they've got the new 4K remastered they did a couple years ago, so it's going to look fantastic. But seriously, 
everyone who's listening, come support Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 because if we support the deep cuts, these places will start programming them more. Because, like, yes. when uh, the Avalon did a, a thing, it's like, oh, what movie would you like to see? And everyone's voting Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1 or Poltergeist, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1 or Poltergeist. And I was like, well, those are great films. They play everywhere and they will play again. Um, let's pick something a little more deep yeah. from his. Well, and that plays into the whole white people complaining about the movies that are coming out nowadays. Like, and, and that's bad producing. That that they're telling us what we want to see. Well, you know what? Support the things that aren't that. If you want to see something different in the theater, go see something different when it comes out, and that will prove to them that there's money to be yeah. made there. Well, it's both Texas Chainsaw 1 and Poltergeist are great films, but I really want Texas Chainsaw 2 to have a, a big audience so that way they'll book stuff like this more often. Yep. Um, the reason the new Beverly Theater in Los Angeles does so well is because they got a rabid fan base that will come see strange movies that no one's ever heard of. You know, if you're only going to come support the most popular choice, then we're not going to get nice things. You know, right? This is why we can't. Like, have nice I, they, 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 they're doing like polls for what they want to do this Halloween, and I said instead of doing the John Carpenter's original Halloween, show Halloween three, because it never plays. Okay, I love I do Halloween too. 3. It is so great. Yes, it is separate from the franchise. I understand that. But it is still a great cornball-like horror movie that is still actually scary. Uh, that that Eight More Days Till Halloween song fucking sticks in your head for two weeks after yep. you watch it. It is beautiful. Silver Shamrock. Also, uh, my wife just texted me and told me that I said the wrong date. It's September 14th, not August 14th. She, So, uh, September 14th. You'd this, have a bunch of people showing up in uh, the past. By the time you're listening to this, if you listen to it on time, come tonight and see Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. <laughs> it has the greatest chainsawing scene set to Oingo Boingo that you will ever see. And if you need any more any more justification than that to see it, Dennis Hopper double wielding chainsaws fighting Leatherface. Done. Like if you don't like this movie, then you just don't like cinema. I'm gonna <laughs> Then I'm, you are wrong. Your opinion is like and I just bullshit. love that Toby Hooper directed it and pretty much said, Well, I'm just gonna spoof my own fucking movie and just make something so off the wall. You'll never forget this movie. I've shown this movie to people who don't like <laughs> horror films, and they're like, and like they left like maybe not necessarily liking it, but like I'm never gonna forget that movie. Right. <laughs> like at one point, like Leatherface grabs his chainsaw and like starts thrusting it like it's his, like it's his member, like it's his little chainsaw, <laughs> and like there's just scenes that you'll never forget. So. <laughs> I hope you will now forever call your member your little Not call my big chainsaw. <laughs> All right. I don't have a bigger <laughs> chainsaw. <laughs> All right, Nick. Let's wrap this up. Um, yep. You All have right. a good one. We'll talk soon. Everyone, thank you for listening. Uh, while we don't have an official outro, i got to keep remembering, please let us, if you like what we're doing, like and rate us on iTunes, subscribe on whatever device. It really helps us out. We're trying to find sponsors and get people interested in the show. If they know you're listening, that helps. Like We really appreciate when you tell us personally, like, oh, I really like that episode. Tell us, tell us on the Facebook page. You, 
you really, maybe we should post a picture because I think what's going to do it is them knowing how giddy we get when somebody comments and the two of us like text each other. We have these big grins on our faces and we get derpy for a minute. And yeah, like it's. Please continue making make us, us derpy, derpy. But like let's, let's get some conversation going on the Facebook page. And, you know, when I when I see something interesting that's relevant, I try to po- I try to share it over there. But just let's keep the conversation going. And um if you if you're ever listening and like you want to comment on one of our the previous if you saw a movie because of one of our episodes record something we'll play it like i had a, i had a friend who'd never seen in the mouth of madness but decided to because of because we just because we talked about it and that's awesome yay so all right awesome Nick. you have, have a good one, one buddy bye later